Well, hey, Chris. Hello. Are you ready to do another episode of Soul Searching, the podcast where we recap the AMC spinoff of their hit show, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul? I am approximately all set. Well, that's good. Um, anyone listening knows that this season we've also been comparing Better Call Saul to a classic spinoff to see if it truly is in the running to be one of the best spinoffs ever. Mm-hmm. I think it's got a pretty good shot, but we've been going through uh, week by week, piecing through the rubble, you might say, of television's past. And we've tried various different ways of choosing the spinoff challengers. But right now we have uh, a new way that's kind of a kind of a cool way. It was sent to us by... We think a fan, but it's a little gadget that uh, when we turn a crank, it spits a card out of a slot that has the name of a spinoff on it. And that's what we did last time. And it gave us the Lone Gunman, an X-Files spinoff that was actually co-created by one of the co-creators of Better Call Saul. So it was a thoughtful suggestion from a random object crafted for us by a fan. I think we're going to use that method again this week to choose our spinoff. Yes, it's pretty neat. So uh, why not? You want to do it this time? Uh, okay, yeah. You ready for me to crank it? Yep. Here we go. And... Okay, here it is. All right. Well, read the card. It says, Galaxy Goof-Ups. <laughs> oh my gosh. Galaxy Goof-Ups. What is that? You don't know Galaxy Goof-Ups? It's an old cartoon from uh, when we were kids. Um, It's like outer space version of Hanna-Barbera stuff where they just... uh. They take uh, uh, Yogi Bear and uh, Huckleberry Hound, and and they put them in outer space. It sounds like one of those. Um, what was it? It was uh, there was Laugh Olympics, and then there was the Space Race. Was that a cartoon? Am I imagining that? Yeah, no, no. The, yeah, Yogi Space Race was where kind of like Laugh Olympics, except in space. And then they took. And they did, yeah. And and Galaxy Goofups was like the same but different. I don't really remember those shows. Uh... <laughs> Holding up that well. I'm not sure why this uh, gadget would have would have picked that, and I'm uh, not sure it's a very good idea. But I, you know, I'm willing because be, it'll be very nostalgic for me. Well, I'll see if it's that kind of good nostalgia or bad nostalgia, but I, I think it'll be the same for me. So, folks, there will be a link in the show notes to Galaxy Goof Ups. Is that what it's called? Yes, Galaxy Goof Ups pilot episode for you to watch so that you can join in with us. And uh, as you know, after the theme song, we'll be talking about Better Call Saul. All right, here we go. And we're back. We have now watched not only the latest episode of Better Call Saul, but the pilot episode of Galaxy Goof Ups from 1979, 1978? 78-ish. I have to say, tracking the provenance of that show is is tricky, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I'm going to have to ask you to talk me through the, um, the Hanna-Barbera-ness of it all, like where Galaxy Goof Ups came from and whether it was a segment on a show that was then spun off on its own show or whether it was characters from a show that were spun off on this show. I feel like I got caught in a Hanna-Barbera whirlwind because not only did I watch Galaxy Goof-Ups at your suggestion, sort of suggestion, you didn't exactly suggest it, you just kind of mentioned it as a possibility. I also watched the pilot episode of uh, Yogi's Space Race, which is um, the show that ostensibly (laughs) Galaxy Goof-Ups was spun off from, but it was a show-length segment pretty much on that show before it got spun off. So it was hard for me to know which Galaxy Goof-Ups pilot was really the true pilot. Uh, I mean, we can untangle all that when, when we get there. You want me to talk about it now? 
because it's a it's a it's a it's a uh, it's a morass is what it is. That's what I'm trying to say. Whew. I don't know. You know, I've thought about switching the the order before of saying we should talk about the spinoff Challenger before we talk about Better Call Saul. Yeah. And I just don't know. I don't know that I've gotten enough feedback from our listeners that say they love the spinoff stuff so much that I want to make somebody right. sit through that. So let's right, right. let's table the discussion of. Um, Galaxy goof ups uh, until until it's time. Right, and we'll talk comparison. about Saul. That's what people are here for. And then uh, after that, they can they can turn it off if they don't want to hear about uh, uh, Yogi and and friends in in space. Because if you're going to say that if an episode of Better Call Saul, if the one criticism that could be lobbed against this show that that sticks is that maybe not a lot happens in an episode. I would say that the one thing you can say about one of these Hanna-Barbera half hours is that there's a lot of shit going on. <laughs> just <laughs> stuff thrown together, and they just were trying to fill time. But yes, those shows were made for a much less discerning audience than the audience of uh, Better Call Saul. Let's have the entree before we have the dessert. Okay. Sounds good. Um, this ninth episode of the fourth season of Better Call Saul was called Vitor Zane. Again, for obvious reasons. Became obvious. It was written by Jennifer Hutchison, who has written an episode previously this season and has been, uh, as I've mentioned before, a writer on the show and is now an executive producer. So I think of her kind of in the same breath as Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan on this show now in terms of people who seem to be shaping what the show is. And it was directed by Vince Gilligan, the co-creator of the character. And up until now, we've felt like the co-creator and co-captain of this show. But I read somewhere that um, Vince Gilligan has stepped away from the day-to-day of the show this season, having been uh, available for the broad outline of the show uh-huh. and coming in to work on different things like directing this episode, but that he was not in the writer's room day-to-day this season as he had been in the past because he's working on other projects. Mm. But I don't know if you would ever be able to stand back and say there was a difference when Vince Gilligan uh, left the you know direct duties of of producing the scripts for this show right i don't think this season seems uncharacteristic i don't know if that knowledge makes anything click into place for you no i i, I wouldn't have known and i think that uh knowing that he was still there while they're crafting the the general outline of the of the episodes um you know is would tend to make it all hold together and appear to be the same thing but uh if he weren't there for that i could imagine Maybe it, the nature of the show might seem to change a little bit to where you might be able to notice. Also, the fact that so many of the writers who were still there are old hand who have been around since the Breaking Bad days. So I think that that's another thing that gives it some continuity and some sense of cohesion that I have never felt like he was this control freak showrunner anyway, you know. Right. But let's talk about the actual episode, Vitor Zane. Uh, did you sense any directorial authorship of this episode? I would say that I did see certain shots and certain camera placements that felt like they were, you know, maybe a little showy, but in that way that Vince Gilligan's input perhaps has always been, because Breaking Bad had that element, too, of just cameras in interesting spots and, and shots that take a minute for you to realize what's going on. Yeah, I, I, I didn't pay special attention, but I do feel like at some point I was struck with the notion... Um, oh, there are a lot of up angles in this show, but I think that's true of of the show in general. They like to put the camera, you know, a, a foot or two below where you normally would, so it just gives it a little extra weirdness or drama where you're just kind of looking up at people more often. And uh, I'm not sure if this episode was stood out for that or if it was kind of typical of what they do. 
I think it's part of the style Bible as established by certain people who worked on the show's visual style. The director, Adam Bernstein, who directed uh, early episodes, had a huge part of defining the style. I think Vince Gilligan, when he's directed it, you've sensed that he likes to think, oh, well, last time we we, we mounted the camera on a shovel that was digging a hole. Uh, this time we're going to put the camera down in a tube where someone's sliding some explosives. Or we're going to put the camera uh, so that it frames Kim's eyes smiling over the monogrammed briefcase that right. she has gotten for Jimmy. Little shots that just feel like the camera's in, a, in an interesting spot that that is framing up a shot that is not just a random thing, you know? Right. Um, it couldn't have been something you found on the day. It had to be something plotted out, and you had to put the camera in this spot so that it would get this this thing. I felt that, but I didn't know that it felt unnecessary. It just felt like it's part of the fun of this show is the visual storytelling. And so when that's kind of playful, um, it lends to the fun of watching, even though I would say this episode took me from a kind of a fun frame of mind to a much less fun frame of mind as it as it chugged along. And I, I kind of wanted to discuss with you that general feeling of whatever f- sort of escapades we pictured when we were talking about Jimmy and Kim teaming up last week. Mm-hmm. We were both excited about this notion that they could kind of be a two-headed beast, you know, pulling pulling scams uh, for the for the greater good, sort of. Right. And we saw that, but we also saw how how quickly that idea kind of spun itself out. Right. I don't know, did you feel that kind of whiplash? Taking into account that we also got that great opening scene that was a full and complete scam scene. Yes. So at least we got that. Right. We had a lot of fun with that caper. I loved it. Uh, Jimmy, as as Bill, the brother, uh, was just brilliant. And, uh, and with his uh, uh, flip-flops and... Uh, a Jimmy Buffett T-shirt <laughs> to go with the flip-flops, uh, like cargo shorts, I think. Right. I just thought that was that was perfect, just to to set up uh, my my brother who tries. I guess that's what counts. And then she gets to meet him, and he's uh, truly a horror, and uh, everything just comes off so so perfectly. And also, you know, when a con job like that is going perfect, when it's the victim's idea. You put everything in place, and then you're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? Oh, well, I guess my day is ruined. Everything's gone wrong. And then Shirley says, you know what? Let's change it out. It's okay. We can do this. I'm helping you. I'm going to stamp these. And Kim is just like, gosh, are you sure it's okay? You know, uh, I think that's when you really have it made is when when the when the victim is becomes the the uh, uh, the active participant. It took me a minute to connect it back to the conversation with Kevin at Mesa Verde about wanting the larger uh, lobby or at least the changed plans for the building Mm -hmm. and how Kim said, we don't want to have to refile at this point. And it just seemed like, okay, this is kind of a funny thing to pull the scam for. It's her doing her job, normal course of business uh, stuff, not very exciting, nothing really for personal gain except to get the feather in her cap, you know, but it was a funny reason to pull a heist. And so I think, yeah, that scene was, was... was a great use of both of them and they played it to the hilt. And yeah, I just think the visual language, as you described of, of the way that Jimmy was, you know, decked out like the, the, the biggest like bumbling underachiever of all time. Right. Just totally out of place in this official environment as well. You know, right. Doesn't know not to leave a baby in a car. It was a little bit of fun. Like we got last week with the, the, you know, the, the Cajun accent and all the phone calls and, and all the fake letters and everything. Right. Right. But yeah, it was a little bit of a of a bring down of like, okay, this is not going to hold together too well and and uh really be 
a thing necessarily. It's going to be a lot harder than you might have thought. But uh, I think they never probably could or would actually put them in a position to be regularly teaming up on fun capers every episode because that is not their structure, their purview to, to, you know, they're not making a matlock or something where they can do a new fun adventure every week. They're making something where you just have to get a little progress in the story each week and you have to be working towards major sweeping changes as you go. And so, yeah, they'll set something up like that, but it can only last a minute before we have to start indicating how it's going to go somewhere else because this can't be the same thing every week. Well, there's already some disagreement between the two of them about what this means, that they can do this. She's thinking more along the lines of doing bending the law in the name of good, and he's thinking more along the lines of kind of bending the law for fun and profit, which might overlap with doing the right thing. And they actually are talking about similar things, but they're talking about it in a different way, and you can see she's pulling yes. back. From what we saw last week, which was Kim kind of pushing him towards this, there was something kind of selfish about Kim getting this thing done, this thing for her client done, yes. which was was an idea. She Not only did she not have to do it, she really didn't have to because she had already talked Kevin out of it at the last meeting. We saw that this was a purely adrenaline-fueled escapade. Um, she can't have cared that much about, about making the the atrium bigger or whatever, uh, the lobby bigger at this branch. It was just a kind of show-offy thing to do. So so I do think that was a little bit disingenuous of her, but it may have felt like, okay, um, uh, we did something to help you. Now let's do something to help me. And now we can sort of sit back and say, oh, that was fun. Let's go back to our regular lives. And Jimmy's willing to kind of pose that that's acceptable to him. But you can see that his mind was already down the road, kind of the way ours were a little bit about how this partnership could go. But I do want to double back and say, I don't so much expect there to be capers all the time. What I would say, though, is that this show has teased us with this notion that eventually it will topple over into the world where things are happening at a faster clip. Um, And I think they know that we've realized that that maybe the show will never do that, that at this point, it would be weird if they suddenly did become this fast paced show. Right. So they do dole out these moments that feel like a hint of the show that this might have been had it been, you might say, more conventional. You might just say faster paced. Um, There's a small part of me that thinks they now enjoy torturing us with the with the oh you thought this was going to go here well now we've done this like this episode definitely teased us with jimmy getting his license back and then yanked that away but there was a part of me that saw that more entertaining more fun (laughs) version of the show slipping away when jimmy once again had a setback and once again slipped back and once again we're seeing his transformation into saul as though it's something we don't want to see happen as though it's something that's a signal of bad things to come rather than kind of the thing we've been waiting for in a strange way. Right, right. Now, I know that sounds greedy, but um, I'm just expressing that feeling I had last night when he was rejected by the board or whatever that group was that he met with for his uh, reinstatement uh, hearing. I want to call them the board, but then it seems like maybe they're going to appeal to the board, and so maybe that was not the board. Was that the little board, and then you go to the big board, or maybe it was the board? But how did you feel about that? It's not that he's going to get his license back, and then next week we're going to see Saul. It's like next week we're going to somehow see something that might take him closer to being Saul. But I don't even know where the season's going to leave us now. Yeah, there's no telling. And I wasn't too confident uh, uh, that he was just going to get his license back uh, when we went into the meeting just because they made it such a a long and, and, and stressful meeting, you know. So I didn't think 
he's got it in the bag or anything. But um, yeah, like like the show in general, you have to uh, be ready for things to that you whatever you get in your head that is coming or that may play out, you have to be ready for the fact that it may be a long time coming or it may never happen. So I try to stay in that zone. I don't know what's going to happen. Right, except we know that eventually he's going to be Saul Goodman. Do we? <laughs> Do we really, John? Uh, maybe this is just a guy who looks a lot like him. Right, it could be a completely other character. No, but they teased us with just how nicely the pieces were fitting into place with him um, talking about using the name Saul Goodman and her talking about that's just a detail. There right. were all these little nudges in the direction of like, okay, this is this is getting so close to happening that they can just let it happen and it won't be forced. It won't be like, oh, of course, it's so cheesy. Right. They just had him say, uh, you know, the people I sell phones to would be great clientele I'm collecting. So he's right there ready to be Saul Goodman. The story of him becoming this guy is actually the story of him repeatedly almost but not becoming <laughs> this guy. There was something about this episode that felt like a major moment for the characters, but it was a much more muted moment of of seeing Jimmy and Kim kind of unravel around this this sort of argument they have that um, that it almost seems like they've needed to have this argument for a while and they've never really had it out in this fashion before. Um, and I had conflicted feelings about that. I think in the end, Kim was pretty much right throughout that discussion there. But for Jimmy, this was a rude moment to hear these these hard truths from Kim. Right, right. Yeah, that was a big blow up and very tense to watch. But it also served the show well, I think, as just a good... Uh, outline of where we are and, you know, so that it's not just you, the viewer, who's thinking, wow, every time he needs her, she drops everything and comes to him. Instead, now you know, that's what she thinks too. You know, all these things that go unspoken all the time. It's nice to, once in a while, uh, say it out loud <laughs> on a show where normally things are not all said out loud. And Jimmy was pretty out of control yeah. in that scene. I think from the moment he reacted so badly to getting rejected, right. I was feeling a little embarrassed for him that he was not seeing clearly. He was not thinking thinking straight. It didn't surprise me when he was rejected based on what happened in the room. That scene wasn't shot like, oh, look at Jimmy knocking it out of the park the way he did, for instance, in the Neff Copiers yeah. scene earlier in the season, which I think this scene kind of mirrored because it had the moment where he left and we see him thinking about what he said yeah. and thinking about going back in. And this time he didn't because this is not the world where you can just barge back in. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was doing great all along, but I was worried that the show was telling me that he was a little off and then I did start to feel um you know I would he'd be going along and I would say oh this is a good time to mention Chuck and then he wouldn't mention it and when they say uh uh what does the law mean to you I was like oh he should just steal Chuck's uh, spiel about that because I feel like we we heard Chuck lecturing Jimmy on on the importance of the law uh, and he didn't. He kind of rambled and went on his own thing, which seemed to work out pretty darn good, and I thought that was all right. But then she comes back with the uh, uh, last question. That was very eloquent. Was there any particular influence on your views? Um, credit where credit is due. The University of American Samoa. Go land crabs. Anything else? No. no. Thank okay. you. 
I think we have everything we need. You'll be getting a letter with our decision in the next few days. Clearly fishing for him to say, uh, Chuck, my beloved brother who I did wrong, I really regret that, I should have never meddled in his stuff, and now he's gone. You know, he could have done all that, and that's where he completely dropped the ball and said, University of American Samoa. You know, he would have been he would have been better to say anything but that, I think. And uh, yeah, that felt really empty and right, shallow for right. him. I was I was thinking the show was dangling the question for us of whether he was going to talk about Chuck, but we were going to know he was actually talking about Kim. Uh huh. And if he was going to say, well, there was somebody who, when I started working right. at this law firm, that really did inspire me, and and blah 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 blah. Like there was going to be some little moment where we might wonder who's yeah. he talking about. Oh, he's talking about Kim, not Chuck. Right. But either way, I think it would have been better. If he talked about an actual person and something that had that kind of heart to it, uh, it didn't occur to me as much through that meeting how much he should have been talking about Chuck. But I did realize, like, they do seem to be fishing for something in a strange way. Like, they started off sort of happy with him, and then they were fishing for that little cherry on top of the sundae, and he never gave it to them. Right. And I didn't know myself. I wasn't sure that that's what it was until it uh, became—until, you know, Kim underlined it. And at that point, you look back at it and say, yeah, yeah, that's exactly why you would ask that question of, is there anyone in particular who influenced your your love of the law? What I thought was really kind of dark and sad about that was, as far as Jimmy knows, he really isn't thinking about Chuck. I wonder if there is something yet to be plumbed there, or if we are to now say, okay, Jimmy really is that cold to Chuck's memory. Right. How did you take the ending? I thought that it seemed like they were almost definitely broken up, but then it seemed like they were kind of still in this, maybe we can build on this, or we've got this tenderness towards each other. Jimmy wisely says it's all his fault, um, or he he's the one that messed it up. Right. And then Kim says something about, do you still want to be a lawyer? And when he says yes, she says, well, we can start with that. How did you see that? Did you see that as her just saying, I'll, I'll still help you with your career, even though we're not together, or what? But the way I took that line, we can start with that, was because during the... Uh, uh, big fight on the parking deck. Her, her first uh, suggestion was, we can appeal it. We're going to go back and make you seem sincere. And so now when he says, I still want to be a lawyer, she says, we can start with that. I took that to mean you and I can put together a plan of how to appeal this to the board, like I said earlier, and uh, and make you seem sincere. So Yes, they do. They do these things so subtly, where it's like, let's give him one line where he doesn't exactly say, uh, "I'm sorry, I blew up, and I was the one who's wrong." But he says it in a little uh, subtle way, and then let's give her one line where she doesn't say, "I'm back on your team. I'm going to help you after all." But she sort of says it in a very subtle way in one line. So I think that's what they were saying. He was saying, "I'm an idiot, and I'm sorry," and she was saying, "Don't pack your things and leave." I'm still on your team. I will help you. Yeah, I, th- I think that's ultimately how I tried to read it to a situation where you have definitely uh, risked your relationship because you've spoken very frankly with each other. You've definitely got some some stuff to unpack together because you were honest. And you, and he literally has some stuff to unpack now because he started. Right, that's true. He's literally got some things to take out of a duffel. Uh, but um, there is a, a moment where. I don't know if you've had one of these arguments, but I think we've been on both sides of this, most likely. But I think I can really relate to the Jimmy side of the argument where you did get some stuff off your chest that maybe you needed to say, but it didn't really hit the mark. The other person can't really react to this. If you need me, I'm there. But somehow in your mind, the only measure of my feelings for you is is 
some office? Yeah, I'm good enough to live with, to sleep with, but God forbid you should have an office with me. What are you doing? I just told you. You get a little bored with your life, so you come down and roll around in the dirt. Have some fun with slipping, Jimmy. Oh, is it fun? Fun like lying to the ADA to get your friend out of the shitter? Or fun like standing there with a smile plastered on my face while you play infantile mind games on my law partner? Oh, what a mistake it was to take me up to your office in the sky. You'll never do that again. Yeah, maybe I won't. And maybe next time you call, I won't come. There you go. Kick him in when he's down. Jimmy, you are always down. Jimmy, you're always down. Yeah. Meaning like you are in such a way that you have a self-defense mechanism of you are always down so no one can ever not kick you when you're down. Right. You're just a hard luck case and things have been going bad for you for two years or whatever and there would be no time at which I could level with you and say these things out loud. If he's always down, then then you then you can never criticize him. Right. And I did think of just bitterness as driving Jimmy so much in this episode in a way that I found very unpleasant. <laughs> and I hope isn't the ultimate thing that destroys him and Kim. I don't think this was the death knell, but it definitely was hard to watch. And it definitely felt like, okay, I, I, I don't see why he's not being nicer to her right now. Why he's not stopping and taking a breath and realizing that that um uh, he's using her like a stress ball, as my son likes to say when someone is uh, clever, unnecessarily taking a tone with somebody. Right. And it's like, it's a very good thing. If someone calls you on that, you do stop and say, you know what? I am actually talking to the person uh, that I'm talking to as though they're the thing I'm mad at when I'm mad at the lawnmower or whatever, you know. Right, right. That aspect of his character is something that we can um, we not say we're surprised by, you know, and yet it was ugly to see it directed at Kim in that way, the way that he was really sticking it to her, really uh, putting the blame on her uh, in a way that felt like, man, you're, you're missed. You're you, anyone on the outside of your brain can see that you are abusing the one person who, who you shouldn't, you know, the one person who's got your back. Right. It felt like one of those fights where one person is under so much stress about something else that they then break and start complaining to their loved one the thing that's been bothering them about them even though that's not the topic right now you know the 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 horror of the day is that he didn't get his license back but then he switches topics on to you don't want to be in a law office with me um so that he can uh get his stress out and attack her and they have a big fight that's legitimately something that he's got hurt feelings about and we know it Right, but now's not the time to do that. But it's also something that legitimately he should let go. Yeah, that too. I'm not advocating for people hiding their emotions and to an unhealthy degree, but sometimes the take a walk and think about it method is a much more productive method to deal with uh, these kind of slights or these moments that you, like you said, where you want to direct, you, you have a criticism that you want to lob at a, at a loved one. It's like, maybe you should. Right, uh, and while you're mad about something else, how you had a terrible day, not a good time for it. So Jimmy did screw up, and he's lucky to have Kim on his side. Do you still feel like you're on Jimmy's side, or do you feel like they're, by necessity, they're turning his transformation into Saul into sort of a monster transformation? No, I'm still on his side. I want him to be a lawyer, and I think that he, if he wants to be a lawyer, he deserves to be a lawyer. That's that's where I am right now with him, and so uh, I just think he failed to come off as sincere to them. I think that's kind of their code for remorse. They're saying, you didn't seem sincere. I think they're saying, you didn't seem remorseful enough because you didn't even bring up 
Chuck or your your crime really in in any detail. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm hoping he can somehow get his act together. No, I agree with you. I think that this was just a, an unexpected downturn. I didn't expect everything to be a piece of cake. I thought it might be a fun caper rather than something that really brought out just about the worst we've seen of Jimmy. Honestly, him yelling at Kim uh, was, was was pretty nasty stuff, you know? Yeah, So, but then we're left with the question of the, next week is the season finale. The season finale might be how they uh, figure out how to cleverly appeal it to the board and get him his license, and hooray, now he's a practicing lawyer, and that's the happy end of the season. Uh, but I don't think uh, that uh, these shows in, in the... Uh, in Gilligan's Albuquerque universe, uh, usually end the season on a on a happy note, right? So more like they're gonna try and fail, and then he's gonna come out of it in some dark, depressed way, or it's gonna be the cliffhanger of what he's gonna do. What do you think? I expect at the end of the season for him to be perhaps reinstated and on very shaky ground with Kim. I wonder if what whatever he tries with Kim doesn't work, and then, and then he does something underhanded that does work, and that is where they end things, or something like that. I just am, I, I feel that him having his license, but but not having her buy-in, would be sufficiently dark and depressing to end the season on, but not so to use your phrase from earlier in the season, not so much of a cul-de-sac. Yeah, that's that sounds right, and also uh, it seems like the perfect time to reveal to us the, exactly how and why he's going to change his name here and and be able to practice as Saul Goodman and all that. So maybe all that is is coming up in these in this next episode or not. I just somehow think that we're going to end this season as you said not on an up note but on a down note. Hmm. That seems to be where Mike's storyline is heading too. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um uh, I, you know, we've we've addressed the fact that Werner's days seemed to be numbered just because of the way that the storyline was sort of pointing out his ill at easeness and his, you know, his his uh, how stir crazy he was going with uh, this arrangement. But last night really put the nail in the coffin of me seeing any way that Werner survives unless he pulls the unlikely feat of escaping. What do you think of all that? And how do you just are you invested in that storyline? Yeah, I'm interested to know uh, where it's going. Um, Werner is, uh, uh, we've seen enough of him now to kind of like him and kind of know him. And, uh, uh, last night when he was going to fix the, uh, the problem with the connection and the explosives, he, uh, he got so nervous and anxious in his breathing and everything that I got really worried. I didn't know if he was about to have a heart attack or something, but, um, but anyway, yeah. And, and now he's clever enough to, uh, Fly the coop, so so uh, I'm interested to see what's going to happen. Yeah, it does just about ensure, though, that there's nothing that's going to happen that's going to put Jimmy and Mike in the same room <laughs> again before the season is over. That's true. That doesn't seem like that's coming up. Given that he's got the Werner mission to go on and Jimmy's doing his thing. Right. Maybe we're going to get a lot of that next year or something. They must realize that those two guys together are, are fun to see. Well, it's just a, an experiment. It's like they... They've made a show with several characters who barely connect, and that's a weird... I don't know that I could name another show ever that's been made like that, where you're kind of watching two or three separate shows in one show, and they just touch base once in a while. The fact that it's the Better Call Saul show, and not called Delayed Gratification, the show, 
kind of makes you feel like if Mike's on the show, he's got some connection to Jimmy, but he barely does. Same with Nacho. Right. Who also had, you know, a new challenge to deal with this week. Um, what did you think of Lalo as he kind of uh, became the bull in the China shop, but in a, in a I would say, a, a new way? How do you think he stacks up to the Hectors and the Tucos and the Gusses as like a new flavor? I like him. Uh, it, it's, uh, he's, he is creepy to watch because he's so sunny. Uh, but you know that he is a uh, bad guy and, and uh, is capable of terrible things. But uh, but he's so nice. <laughs> he's like overly nice, uh, and so it gives you a kind of a queasy feeling. And then I I, I like the uh, the idea of when they go see Hector and he gives him the bell and he has this story about how it was a souvenir from some awful thing they did at a hotel that they burned down and they tortured the hotel owner or something and then he got this bell and like, he gives it to Hector. They tortured him in front of his wife before they killed them both or something like that. Something just awful, whatever it is. And uh and so now that's another another uh layer that they've given Hector, you know, that uh, any any breaking bad person, uh, any breaking bad fan just knew Hector as someone who has this bell he can ring. Well, now here's a story behind the bell. Where did the bell come from? Now you know. It's one of those things that a prequel runs the risk of doing, where they give you the origin story of the bell. And you say, well, was that interesting enough to be a scene? And you go, hell yeah, that was interesting enough to be a scene. because The origins you were not asking for. The origins you were not asking for, but in a way it introduces Lalo. In a way it gives Hector, a, as you said, a shading of, of character and a shading of nostalgia that kind of goes across his face. Of, of yeah. Like Lalo is a connection to this past and maybe it made Hector feel less... Um, um, I want to say disempowered, if that makes any sense, right. than he feels in this moment. But also it's that indication to anyone standing around that the Hector that's inside there is the Hector who remembers these things and who feels pride in these things. So it allows him to exist in that queasy space that Hector's always been in of a, of a, of a guy who we never liked, despite the fact that he was in very sympathetic circumstances. What I really liked about those scenes with Lalo too, though, is it gives Nacho the opportunity to have these a, a few great reaction shots He's really not sure what's up with Lalo. Like, he's not privy to it. He's just kind of along for the ride. You can tell he's assessing. He still hasn't, like, broken out of that shock that he was in when, when Lalo was just standing there in the kitchen last week. He's kind of helpless. It seems like he just knows that he has to do what Lalo says and be cool about it. So he just—but you can see he seems uncomfortable and simmering, you know, but he doesn't look like he's— making a plan or like he has any way out of it he just looks like he's like okay i have to answer all your questions and i have to drive you where you want me to drive you and so i'm doing it must have been on the amc site they had a clip of them talking about this episode and i forget who it was it may have been uh vince gilligan who said gus is a master chess player with all these plans and along comes lalo who may only be a checkers player but he's still dangerous yeah and that was a thing this episode when he goes to see gus and he starts talking about eladio and everything i was like what is this some kind of mind game where like gus hasn't said anything about anything and he's saying like what does he say? Uh, you know, I don't think you should go up against Eladio, or you know, or something. It's like you're, you're. Are you trying to put that in his head that he should go up against Eladio, or what is the deal there? And he seems so nice and overly helpful and respectful. But then when they leave, he throws his cup 
in the parking lot just litters and I thought that was a, a really uh, uh, right on the head way of showing his, his his total disrespect because Gus keeps such a fastidious parking lot you always see him out there sweeping I agree that was a great detail and it, it totally even if Lalo has never seen Gus out there sweeping um, we've seen it and so knowing the symbolism of the disrespect, yes, was was very, very clever and very strong and felt like it did kind of punctuate the scene in a way that gave us one of our few indications that Lalo himself is definitely not sincere. Right. Up to that moment, you might think, well, maybe he's this guy who tries to kid himself that he's running his business in a friendly way. Right. And coming in and making these comments. Because the way, he, yeah, he, he goads... Gus into offering his opinion on the idea of going up against Donaladio and then says, ah, I'm just messing with you, but I know you're a smart guy. You wouldn't do that. You know, right. it's that, it's that weird thing. I think I've told the story even on this podcast before, but maybe not somewhere I've told it where I had a manager at a record store who was asking me about this, this, uh, young woman that worked there uh-huh. and whether I thought she was hot. And I kept telling him, no, I, I have a girlfriend. I don't really comment on, on other women or uh-huh. I don't really talk about women's appearances. And he was like, no, no, come on, you can tell me. Do you think she's hot? And I was like, no, no, I really don't talk about that kind of stuff. Right. And he finally got me to say, yeah, I think she's attractive. And he was like, hey, I can't have employees dating. <laughs> and he was actually kind of mad at me, you know, but it was similar to what, it was similar to what Lalo did uh, uh, to, to Gus in that moment. Uh, you know, Gus didn't take the bait, I guess, quite as yeah. much as I did, but I, I don't think I did either. All I did was say, yeah, she's all right. What do you mean? You know? <laughs> right. And then he's like, hey. Listen. Hey, watch it. I'm, <laughs> we've got a policy here. We can definitely see that that Gus is feeling the ripple effect of Lalo too, and I loved the little visual communication of Gus shrugging and saying, "What the fuck?" to Nacho <laughs> when when uh, you know right. when, when Lalo is there. Like I'd sort of forgotten that Nacho was under Gus's thumb to the extent that Gus might like a warning if something like this happened, but Nacho seemed to just sort of say, "I I'm not in control of this, man." Right. They had that nice little beat where Gus with only his face and his paws seems to say uh why why didn't you how are you letting this guy come here and act like a jerk and nacho with only his face and a little shrug is able to say like i'm not in charge of him i can't do anything the one thing i was realizing is that with one cold open left for the season that means we can only get one other scene that's like set in a different time um, or a flashback or something. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they do that with the cold opens and sometimes they do that a few times a season and we've gotten a couple this year. You know, obviously we got a Gene scene and we got that flashback to Jimmy and Kim's early days at HH&M and then we got the one that was the Saul Goodman sort of flash forward. Um, so that there's one last cold open spot that could either be something directly connected to the storylines as this episode had, which was the the caper with the architectural plans getting swapped out. Right. I don't know. They've got one last chance, but uh, I'm not I'm not expecting any window into another time or a flashback or anything. But I'm I never am expecting it when they give me that. So uh, it could be. I'll tell you what is a window into another time, Chris. Galaxy goof ups. Yes. From Hanna Barbera. Yes. So anybody who is not here for the spinoff challenge doesn't want to hear about uh, a very strange, very marginal cartoon, you can shut off now. But anyone else, I would say hop on the rocket ship. 
with us. Because here we go. Okay, Chris. So I, I asked you at the beginning of the show to be my guide through the land of, of Hanna-Barbera and the very concept of what a spinoff means uh, to, to a company that was putting out so many shows that had combinations of characters and, and segments based on certain characters. Talk me through Galaxy Goof-Ups. Uh, well, let's see. I, <laughs> I read up on it a little bit because I didn't really remember this from when I was a kid. Maybe it didn't play in, in my market or something, but I did remember Galaxy Goof-Ups in, in reruns on other stuff, but I didn't know the details of how it came about, so I, I looked into it. But, um, yeah, there was uh, uh, Yogi's Space Race, and that's where you take uh, uh, Yogi Bear and Huckleberry Hound and a bunch of other characters, and you throw them together, kind of like uh, 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 Laugh Olympics or uh, uh, what was the, the regular race, not in space, show that they did, uh, Wacky Races. And, uh, and But you have them all race in spaceships through outer space. The racers are lined up at the starting line, awaiting the bell. At post position number one in their supercharged Galacticator is Yogi Bear and his co-pilot, Scare Bear. Smarter than the average space racers? Hey, hey, Scare? Where are you, Scare? Where else would a Scare Bear be? Under the seat. In position number two... Uh, they did that... But it was like a part of a, a an hour and a half show where they, you know, how Hanna Barbera would always put several shows together in a block under one name for no good reason. I can't figure out why they did that. But um, so that was, uh, I guess, went for a year or something. And they decided to cancel the space race part, I think. And so they took that up. But Gal- Galaxy Goof Ups was one chunk of that. And then there were some other shows that were made up the other parts. So they took the two other shows and made them into their own hour and Galaxy Goof-Ups into its own half hour. And then I think Galaxy Goof-Ups went for for another year before it was canceled. Yeah, and what were the other characters created for the show that got sent off to their own show? It was... Um, oh, yeah. I believe the characters that were in Space Race had their own segment on the show. The... Um, the sort of ghost of a prospector who's named Nugget Nose and right. Wendy and Rita, the two yes. good-hearted farm girls that he kind of hangs out with and watches out for, I guess. These lady lovelies of space, Rita and Wendy, and their spaced-out sidekick, Nugget Nose. Yes, sir! Nugget Nose Nose! <laughs> right, the, 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 uh, that's the, that was called The Galloping Ghost, and I do remember that show from when I was a kid. Galloping Ghost had Nugget Nose and... Uh, and they lived on a on a ranch in the old west. He's like a yeah, he's like a prospector. But he's like the ghost of a prospector. Yeah, right. Like I guess he's the galloping ghost, right? He he gallops yes. on a on an invisible horse. I, yes. I I vaguely remember certain things about it. But what I what I couldn't quite figure out was how that how that <laughs> the genesis of the character as a character with his own show or his own segment or I suppose the characters Wendy Rita and Nugget Nose. Uh-huh. And yes, we're just going to accept that his name is Nugget Nose and he kind of his nose kind of wiggles. Sure. Um but um, that so that was another segment on the original Space Race show, and when that was canceled, that got to be yet another segment on another show that was kind of split between it and some other segment. It's the Buford Files. Maybe? Oh, maybe the Buford Files, because that would be a nice play on the Rockford Files. Oh, that I think that's it. But Buford is a is a uh, you know an old hound dog in the swamp, and so he has detective adventures where it's you know like Scooby Doo, you put some teens and a dog together, and they are qualified to solve mysteries naturally. So you have Buford, who's a very 
a sleepy old hound dog with a Confederate cap on, and they live in the swamps of Louisiana, I gather. And uh, I remember that from when I was a kid, too. So I guess I guess I did see when they made that an hour-long block and called it uh, uh, Buford and the Galloping Ghost, uh, I saw that. But that had been broken off of, yeah, Yogi Space Race, which included that, and Space Race, and Galaxy Goof-Ups. Right? Yeah, it looks like The Buford Files was the name of this segment on Yogi Space Race, and then the show was called Buford and the Galloping Ghost. Right. When and that was concurrent with or post this? I mean, I guess I guess what's really confusing to me is when the characters, when, when Galaxy Goof-Ups um, became its own show, the pilot of which we watched, and the, the link to the pilot of which is in the show notes of this podcast, so you can watch it um, and, and know what we're talking about. That show has a couple of characters that I did not really know outside of Space Race, which I had seen before somehow, which is Scare Bear and uh, uh, Quack Up, this right. duck. Yes. That I, I immediately thought, oh my gosh, this is such a mutated combination of Donald Duck and Daffy Duck. And then to find that Mel Blanc actually does the voice of, of uh, Quack Up. Yeah. But that character was introduced on, on Space Race and then spun off into... The Galaxy Goof Up storyline kind of on the same show at the same time. But I, I couldn't find any other instance of that character or of Scare Bear um, that, that predated the Space Race Goof Ups right. crossover. So I don't know. What's your understanding of those characters? Am I am I right in, in assuming that that was where they existed? And that's why I haven't seen them much? But I don't think that Space Race was on before Galaxy Goof Ups. I think that Galaxy Goof Ups was a portion of the 90-minute thing that included Space Race and Galaxy Goof Ups. So these two characters were invented to be on both those shows at the same time. And then Space Race went away, and they continued to last a little longer on those shows. So so what about Galaxy Goof-Ups was unique to that show? The only thing I could find is it seems that Captain Snurdly might be unique to the Galaxy Goof-Ups show. Yeah, they had their own characters. You had Snurdly, and then he has a boss, and then they have different villains every week. And they have their own spaceship on that show, which they, they do not have that spaceship in Space Race. The two villains of this pilot episode, those those aren't like their regular baddies. Right. No, I kind of, I, I watched a minute or two of a couple more episodes to figure out that they do indeed have uh, a villain of the week uh, uh, situation. Did Zangra and, and Draco only appear in this one episode ever? I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, you would have to do more research. <laughs> yes, Princess Glama, Zangra and Draco, the evilest team in all the universe. <laughs> Enough, Draco! Although, you would think, as cheap as they were, they like to recycle all kinds of stuff, so it does seem like they might very well have said, we got to do ten episodes, but let's use these villains uh, more often. It's kind of surprising they didn't just pick one villain and have him, have him back every week. So what we watched was the pilot of the full show, which you're saying would have been roughly identical to a segment on the Space Race combination show. Right. I think what we watched was originally a portion of Yogi's Space Race block that included that, a Yogi Space Race, a Nugget Nose, and a Buford. And it's just that now it stands on its own as just Galaxy Goof-Ups because uh, why not? 
Why does this all sound so crazy to me when we talk about it? We have not sounded crazier. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is crazy, because Hanna-Barbera had this weird deal where, I guess, you know, they were were so uh, ubiquitous on TV in the late 70s that they could kind of make their own thing, and I guess they would just... They'd have a show that was a semi-hit or whatever, and they could just go into the network and say, okay, now we're taking the characters from that show and some other characters from this other show and jamming them together with some new characters that we just made up today, and uh, and that's it, and it's 90 minutes. And the network would be like, okay, sounds good. But Hanna-Barbera, you know, to save money, was not uh, spending a lot of time on... Uh, coming up with this stuff. Although they do, you know, they, they get a certain amount of, like I said, a, a different villain on each episode. So you're, you are, they're trying to get some creativity in there. It's just a constant fight between the, you know, the creators who are trying to do some good writing and some good animation, but uh, they only have uh, so many days to do it because the execs have said, you know, they've already signed them up for so many uh, episodes in a season and there's only so much time in a day. So we also watched just for our own edification. We also watched the pilot of space race, which I assume that was the introduction of quack up and, um, and scare bear right. that I saw. Right. I would think so. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, I felt like that show had some place in my memory. Like I had some memory of Captain Good turning into phantom. Fink, yeah. And I had some memory of, of clean cat and uh, Sinister Sludge, I don't know where that came up as a topic. Was it you and I that talked about that character and that character name and it being some kind of like crossways relationship to the other dog? Is it Ugsley? Am I Mugsley? What's his name? The dog that, that does a <laughs> laugh that was on Laugh Olympics all the time. What's his name? Um, Muttley. Muttley. Although there are various versions of that dog in Hanna-Barbera. It's like they have Muttley and then they have... Uh, one or two other ones who kind of have the same design and a different name for a different villain sidekick, but they just reuse the design and the laugh or something. I don't know. It's That would be something to sort out for sure. And how they reconcile having a show that has a segment where you have a, a prospector ghost on a dude ranch that, that, that they have adventures there, Rita and Wendy and, and Nugget knows, and that they're also in a segment where they're in outer space with a sort of dude ranch themed uh, approach to traveling through space, but it's still them in a in a spaceship just zapping around. No explanation, zero explanation. Right, without any attempt to make it make sense. And I just I realized that that Hanna Barbera sensibility. Like I can't tell if I think it's really sort of fun and hip and like the um, the yogaba gaba of its day. Right, or whether I think it's the most underimagined schlock. Crap that has been barely made watchable by, as you said, the the charm of maybe some vocal performances, maybe some animation, maybe the occasional little shot or something, a visual gag that actually does elicit a chuckle. Somehow this stuff is watchable and nostalgic for me, but it also reminds me of being kind of trapped in front of the television, you know, being stuck watching this stuff that was clearly produced for television with an eye towards... Um, as we said when we discussed another Hanna-Barbera show, the uh, 
uh, completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley earlier in our season feels like a lifetime ago, but we talked about how much that Hanna-Barbera aesthetic is about stretching the dollar. And it is mildly more interesting when they're doing something that's that verges on hallucinogenic uh, yeah. as some of the stuff in Space Race and particularly uh, an extended dance sequence in Galaxy Goof-Ups right. that's a very disco era type of thing to do, but also had that kind of animation that you know kind of creeps me out a little bit. And I remember being a kid and seeing that kind of thing and not knowing quite what to do. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not boilerplate schlock, but it is because it's Hanna-Barbera and it's got that dollar stretch to its max, it is schlock. And I don't know, you know, we've discussed it before with Ed Grimley, but I guess I want to come back around to this feels much more like a purely Hanna-Barbera enterprise because it's got this mixture of characters. It's got Huckleberry Hound in space, which we didn't need, and Yogi Bear in space, <laughs> which we didn't need. And it's got all these other crazy characters that were created for this show and also thrown into spaceships and they're racing around. And I don't know, between Space Race and um, Galaxy Goof-Ups, like... How much do you like this? Uh, um, <laughs> um, space race is uh, uh, hard to enjoy very much. It's not great. Uh, I think that like uh, Laugh Olympics, uh, I remember seeing through Laugh Olympics just as a kid uh, being kind of mad at like how can you take all these characters and throw them together when they're not even drawn in the same style? Even as a child, I can see that Yogi Bear should be in one universe and Scooby-Doo should be in another universe. They're not the same type of thing, and you've put them together and just acted like they are. But maybe that's me being uptight, and maybe they really were just having fun, and maybe everyone needs to be open to all the fun. And so, you know, you could say that that's great but yeah as a kid it just made me kind of annoyed and space race is the same as that but galaxy goof ups was better in that you get more of a chance to do some real comedy because it's more like a, a real show and uh and you get to spend a little more time with the characters and situations instead of just going it's a race. Who's in first? Who's in second uh, until the end of the race? I mean, it's riffing on certain things. Clearly, coming out in 78 and 79, these shows were, um, uh, you know, drafting off of Star Wars. Yes, it's completely cynical in that they're like, you can put something in space, and that'll make it exciting to kids. And it doesn't have to necessarily be any good. And maybe the creators of this didn't realize that Star Wars had quality going for it as well as being in space and so they're like just put it in space and now we've got something and it goes as far in galaxy goof ups as first episode the uh uh villainous zangra has a kind of a death star ship she's got a like a planetoid a, 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 a metal planet uh and then one of the uh scenes in there is like a, a compacting room similar to a trash compactor this room is shrinking on you uh, so they're they're really uh, going for it with uh, you know they just had had just gotten home from seeing Star Wars I guess and said all right let's start sketching this out. Well, speaking of the sort of designs from the episode, and as you mentioned before, the kind of bizarre nature of these shows where they throw in characters with different character designs, 
Um, I do think that the villains in this did have, they felt like a more cartoony villain that fit with the sort of cartoony tone of, of Yogi and Huckleberry Hound and, and Scare Bear and, and yeah. Quack Up. But there were these background characters that seemed to be drawn in a slightly different style that was a little bit bizarre and a little bit like maybe these were dashed out and they weren't very workshopped in terms of the designs. But I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but there's these odd little one-eyed creatures and stuff that did not feel very Hanna-Barbera to me. It felt like somebody from some underground comic or something had come in to draw a bunch of ugly little aliens and creatures, almost like it was some... Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings <laughs> type thing. Yeah, amateur production. I think that's a symptom of when you have a bunch of aliens uh, uh, and extras in a show and you don't want to spend the time to do, you know, to get your, your designers to design them, uh, you just let the animator design it. And normally you get away with that because it's like, here's a grocery store scene. We need three people in the background uh, and they're going to be people. And you tell the animator, just put some people back there and... It's not going to stand out that the animator designed it, even though he's not, you know, your top character designer at your studio or something. But here, when you say, oh, there's some aliens in the background, make some aliens dancing in the background, uh, or, uh, or or just make up the alien for your scene where the alien gets uh, uh, hit in the face or whatever, then that animator gets to do it. And that animator might have an odd sensibility of what makes an appealing character. Or just a slightly condescending attitude, as you were kind of referring to, towards the idea that, oh, these Star Wars creatures, just just give them one eye and big ears, and and that's all you got to do. You know, yeah. they don't have to be very well designed. Um, unlike, say, on Space Race, the, the aliens they encounter at some point, the Gooblies, those aliens felt sort of tossed off, but in a very Hanna-Barbera cartoon style. Um, the things I'm talking about from Galaxy Goof-Ups don't quite look like they're in that world. That's a problem that, that Hanna-Barbera, of course, would start to face because here they've had styles of different shows. Imagine the, the Yogi era style, the Flintstones era style, and and the uh, Scooby era style. These are all kind of shades or different styles. And then they said, let's do Laugh Olympics, throw all those characters into one show. Uh, and then let's do uh, Yogi's Space Race, throw a bunch of these different types of characters into one show. And so the studio probably started to think, you know, everybody working at the studio probably started to think, oh, there's no particular style. We don't really have a house style. And so even on this show, now the director is confused about what the style is. So some of the background aliens don't look uh, right. I mean, certainly to me, even I, I would I'd be pickier about it than you. I think uh, Zangra is, is too uh, realistic for Yogi and... Huckleberry, uh, she looks more like she could go on a Scooby show. Well, so does um, Princess Glama. Yeah, yeah, totally. She could be uh, just friends with with, uh, Daphne and Velma. Except she's doing a very, very overbaked Catherine Hepburn impression with the rally I do. Right, or underbaked, because that's all you do is just let's give her a female teen voice and then have her add rally I do to everything. Uh, <laughs> at which, of course, the kids of 1979 were so plugged in to the, half, the, the Catherine Hepburn of 1935 or whatever that refers to. But we were, we were, man, we were forced, we were forced to enjoy so much of of the entertainment of the past. And and you and I are both guys who like old movies and enjoy, you know, uh, being aware culturally of what the forebears of the stuff you enjoy might be. So I'm not even knocking it, but it is funny how much we had to sort of like 
kind of go, okay, I guess, to all these old Hollywood impressions, you know, and all these references right. to things that we didn't quite get. Like half the Hanna-Barbera characters are throwback references to someone else's shtick, you know? Right. And I don't know that I ever quite caught that when I was a kid. I think, in fact, it may have been you in my early teens when you, when we talked about this stuff that I started to realize that some of those characters were riffing on, on you know, vaudevillian comedians and people from the era before before film or television. I don't know that I'd say riffing as much as stealing. It would just be like most every one of their main characters would be where they said, okay, let's give him a voice like this famous comic or that famous comic. And But here in Galaxy Goof-Ups, uh, they have topped themselves where uh, they've got Scare Bear, one of our four heroes, and uh, Scare Bear sounds just like Joe Besser, but not because they got a cartoon voice actor to do a good Joe Besser impression. It's because they got Joe Besser. Oh, what happened? <laughs> and uh, Quack Up sounds like a horribly um, abused uh, Donald slash Daffy Duck because they actually had Mel Blanc in there. Ripping right. off his own creation and ripping off the the other guy, the Disney version. It's It was just a bizarre thing. Like seeing that that was Mel Blanc doing the character of Quack Up, yeah. my heart sank a little bit. But I realized that the 70s were probably a time where... He was just taking a paycheck and doing as many jobs as he could get. He was still doing Barney Rubble, so they could just get him to do whatever. But um, but yeah, he really he just makes a sound that sounds uh, Donald-ish because he goes way 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 except through his cheeks or whatever. And but then when he starts talking, he basically sounds exactly like Daffy, but pitched up, so sped up you know a little higher. <laughs> But I really appreciate the show. I think uh, that uh, 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 Galaxy Goof-Ups is a lame, flawed show overall, but that it has two main features I can appreciate. One is the disco sequences, which we'll get to, but right now since we're on Quack-Up, let's talk about Quack-Up. Quack-Up, one of our four heroes, is like Hanna-Barbera trying to be funny in a wackier style. Uh, and even though that is cynical, the same as like, let's just do, put it in space like Star Wars because that's a hit. This is kind of the same. It's like, hey, let's uh, have a funnier drawing and uh, funnier uh, antics for this character than our normal characters. He's going to actually do stuff. He's going to do comedy and he's going to have a funny voice and he's going to look much sillier than most of our characters. And so even though, you know, that's kind of a, a an evil way to act, the result is still, hey, this is a, a more enjoyable character than most of your characters. To me, I could, I could kind of get into Quack Up. Uh, he's just a, he's got a longer bill uh, than you would expect from a Hanna-Barbera character. He is completely nutty because he's wearing a, a, a thick glasses He's he's uh, he's got the long bill, but with one tooth in the middle. I mean, you can't really get sillier than that. He's got yeah, his goggles and his and his aviator cap, but with a propeller on top. Plain old aviator cap, not funny enough. And then give him a crazy uh, jacket, sort of a straight jacket looking thing with sleeves that are too long for his hands to ever stick out. Uh, and then his shtick, which is to just uh, come in from off screen, making noise. Uh, 
fast and furious, and our other characters say, quack up alert, or here comes quack up, get ready, or whatever they say, and they all pull out their helmets, put their helmets on. Quack up runs into the room, runs into the wall, uh, the, the ceiling breaks up and falls on everybody's heads, and then they take their helmets off, and then quack up, you know, does a bit, or whatever. But, uh, uh, you know, to me, that's sort of a successful experiment in in Hanna-Barbera saying, let's rip off Warner Brothers. Uh, and it's like, eh, you know, that actually kind of worked. It did come out funnier than most of your stuff. But then the worst moment where it, it falls flat for me is, let's rip them off so hard that you see right through it. There's a moment where Quack Up gets blown up or something, and his bill is off, and he has to put his bill back on. Just like Daffy in uh, several of those late-era fantastic Chuck Jones cartoons. Um, uh, duck, Wab- rabbit, duck. Yes, Wabbit season. And uh, he's always getting his bill blown off and sticking it back on. Uh, but when Quack Up does that, I'm like, no, no, you can't. That's too specific. You can't go that far. You're saying that you actually muttered under your breath some form of Hanna-Barbera, you're better than this. <laughs> I, I wanted him to be better than that because I was sort of, I was, on, I was trying to be on board for Quack Up. Uh, but when that happened, I said, uh, that's a, just a big reminder that they they really were just just in it for the money. You're right that Quack Up is a truly zany character and almost looks like a Mad Magazine parody of Donald Duck or something like that. There's something kind of crazed about it. And I do give them credit for that. Yeah, he's like a parody of a cartoon character. Like if you said to any cartoonist, draw a cartoony duck, and that's very silly— and then you said, uh, no, that's not quite silly enough. Let's let's push it. You know, go about as silly as you can. You know, he'd be up there. Well, I mean, I found it very strong in the ways that you suggested, but also extremely irritating. And, and I think that that might be part of the appeal, question mark, of watching this type of cartoon as an adult, is that it really is the visual equivalent of a super sugary cereal. Yeah. You've always led me to believe that there were creative professionals with real... Um, intentions behind some of this stuff that were doing the best with what they could. So I think that is very... Right. That's there for sure. And this show does feel inspired in the sense that you do get more interesting animation in something like the disco dance sequence than you would normally get in a show like this. And it did feel kind of druggy and it did feel kind of weird for Saturday morning. And also... Speaking of the music, the sound design in general was just so nostalgic and familiar. There's this Hanna-Barbera box of sound effects that they, I think maybe for the space shows, they just put more reverb on them, but it's the same set of sound effects that they use for almost all their shows. Yeah. Yeah, that was a close one. It just feels like, what does this represent culturally? What is the value of this? It does seem like there's something slightly subversive going on in the nooks and crannies of it. But by and large, it's just such pablum yeah. produced en masse for, for a non-discriminating audience. Yes. Uh, but here's one nice little touch. I liked um, Clever Idea. It just goes right past you, but if you catch it, is is nice. Is uh, uh, the, the princess is being uh, held hostage uh, in a birdcage, and uh, there's newspapers underneath her. I just thought that was great. You know, she's got a big gold bird cage. Of course, it's obviously the bad guys made this to <laughs> entrap a human. It's there. It's, you know, it's not a bird cage. It's just a cage that's shaped like a bird cage. Uh, but, uh, yeah, she's got newspapers underneath. And it's just something you could notice and say, oh, wow, funny, cute. But uh, you could easily pass it right by because they don't make a real 
joke out of it. But uh, uh, I would say the other main thing we got to talk about uh, for Galaxy Goof Ups that makes it a show that somebody might want to ever visit besides Quack Up is the disco sequences. They just had this idea for this show that our heroes who are, uh, uh, you know, incompetent stooges who are space police and go on space adventures, uh, that they, just like cashing in on Star Wars, let's cash in on disco. So every episode, at some point in the show, they're going to go to the disco and dance. And they can't wait to get to the disco, and then they go to the disco, and there's a cool sequence of the disco. But they put a little extra... Uh, Zaz on that. They they uh, made a bunch of. kooky, psychedelic animation that they could recycle from one episode to the next. Uh, but uh, they did make more than they needed so that uh, it's not always exactly the same sequence. And the animation is animated. The, you're seeing these these uh, aliens dancing, but they are animated in a fluid form. You do get some bad animation in there. You get, you know, Yogi doing a bad dance or Huckleberry Hound doing a, a terrible disco dance but as soon as they get into this sequence they'll show these aliens doing these cool fluid moves with weird camera angles they're coming up in the camera they're moving up and also it's drawn in a style that's sort of pencily or scritchy it'll be light lines on a dark background too they would have these textured cells so that they could get a chalk look to it or the charcoal uh uh or or charcoal pencils or something and uh so yeah, it would look abnormal, and yes, and maybe right. They would use light lines on on dark background and like overlapping repeated images. Just lots of stuff thrown in. Pretty much the whole psychedelic right playbook, but thrown at what does feel like a much more space age design with these like neon colors and black, and and it's a little stroby, and it definitely is emulating the kind of dance club environment. I, I agree; those moments were unusual to see in a Hanna Barbera show of its era. Yeah, the, most of the show might not have much going for it, but you could, I think, you could take those sequences out of each episode and then re-edit them into uh, a uh, a cool short video for watching now and you can put it over some real disco instead of over a fake disco song that was made for a Hanna-Barbera cartoon and uh, actually make a nice little short uh, psychedelic film out of it. And it doesn't really even fit with the show that well um, but it's such a crazy premise and of course it's part of the reason that Captain Snurdly hates the Galaxy Goof-Ups because they usually succeed on their mission despite doing things like stopping to have a disco break and he's just the classic Hanna-Barbera boss character taken to the next level where he's just got this rage issue and he hates the Goof-Ups so much. Have officers Huckleberry Hound and Scareberry report to me immediately. Sorry sir, they're nowhere on the base sir. They're nowhere on the base? They're nowhere on the base? <laughs> But at one point, he gets so mad, he, he he bites his comb. And then there's another scene where he goes out of the room and has a freak out. And then there's another scene where he's so mad, his hair is just kind of vibrating in the whole scene. Right. Um, 
it almost seems unwarranted. I mean, I can understand how frustrating <laughs> these guys would be to deal with. He has a scene with Quack Up that makes me realize, okay, I can get why this guy's yeah. stress level is so high. Right. But it almost seems like, why don't you just relax? They actually seem like they're trying. And in the end, they, they, they might need an extra reminder to get out of the disco and go save the princess. But in the end, they, they're all right guys. You know, it seems yeah. like Snurdly could save himself some trouble if he just relaxed. Yeah. Did you notice the very strange dig at night school? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Here come the galaxy goop-ups now. They went right by us. Where did they learn to be so stupid? Oh, they went to night school. Really, they did. All right. I just thought, wow, that seems like, uh, you know, okay. That's how it is, huh? (laughs) Like elitism from a Hanna Barbera cartoon, I didn't right. know that existed. Right, that is that was a weird joke. So I think now is the time to answer the question that's that's been haunting us all along, which is how does Galaxy Goof Ups stack up to Better Call Saul? Which one is the better spinoff? Uh, so far, Better Call Saul is much better as a show than Galaxy Goof Ups, but I would say that maybe maybe uh, Better Call Saul could could uh, could do with a little bit of quack up. If they just could introduce a really crazy cartoon duck who comes barreling into the scene, everybody has to put on their helmets to, so that the plaster falls on their head. Uh, they're protected by their helmet. Uh, that, that might inject a, a little more uh, pizzazz. You don't think Gus Fring brings that kind of quack up flavor to the show? Um, no, he's more of he's more of the Huckleberry Hound. He's he's cool under pressure. I did think at one point when we were comparing these spinoffs to each other that we would do more one to one ratio type. Uh, which which character on this show was yeah. the Jimmy? Right. So I, I I guess with Galaxy Goof Ups that is a more entertaining question than it is with the other shows. Which which uh, who on Galaxy Goof Ups is the Jimmy? Do you think? Uh well, I want to say Yogi because he's like the main hero you're supposed to sort of follow and identify with. But, uh, no, let's go with Quackup because he's the entertaining one. And Jimmy is the entertaining one uh, for my And mind. Captain Snurdly is Chuck. Yes. Well, I think our work here is done, Chris. Yeah, that's enough. We can, <laughs> we, we can stop there. <laughs> so what do you think we should do next time? Uh, I mean... Do you think we should continue with the box? What else will we do? Well, we could continue with the box and turn the crank and get a spinoff suggestion from it next time just like we've been doing the last couple episodes and and you know whoever made the box thank you but i was going to offer this option chris since you've kind of hung in there with all these crazy different methods we've never done the thing you said you wanted to do in the first episode of the season which was you would like to cover laverne and shirley yes your favorite spinoff so i was wondering if you wanted to take the chance if you'd like that option we can either go with this box, which, you know, it's a cute little doodad. It's been good for a few laughs. But, I mean, what is it really? It's just kind of junk, right? Right. Or we can go for the steak. We can go for the filet mignon of spinoffs. Yes. Laverne and fucking Shirley. What do you think? Yes, let's just do it. If we're, we can make our own adventure and do, because Laverne and Shirley, clearly so relevant. It's timeless. Uh, it's funny to this day. And uh, uh, Michael McCain had so much to do with making that show great, not just in acting, but in writing, and so much to do with making Better Call Saul great. Uh, so it's, to me, totally relevant. And yes, if you're offering that we can just make up our own minds and do that, fantastic. Let's review Laverne and Shirley next time. So what you're saying to me is yes, yes, a thousand times yes? Yeah. That sounds great. 
Hot talk. Hot talk. Now I met a little man from outer space. She had a funny hat and a weird little face. I asked him why he talked this way. He told me that was all he'd learned to say. It's Quacka, a quack up alert! It would appear that all is clear.